0: We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the weekend's box office numbers, and then also I'm going to be joined a little bit later on to do a mini water cooler segment. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey, everyone. How's it going? All right, Brian. So I'm gonna have Brad join me for a water cooler thing a little bit later on. But in the meantime, I wanted to talk to you about what's going on uh, in the the world of Hollywood. And because the strikes are happening, there's really not a ton of like big movie news happening. Obviously, like, you know, sites slash, like slash Film and, you know, our, our bread and butter over the past 15 plus years has been, you know, casting stories and, and, uh, you know, talking about, you know, speculating about all, all sorts of things along those lines, right? And um, All of that stuff has sort of ground to a halt, uh, obviously, because of the strikes from SAG-AFTRA and the uh, Writers Guild of America. Those are still ongoing. Uh, The latest, as far as I know, the the latest reports that I've heard are the WGA is talking with the AMPTP, the 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 sort of uh, alliance of, um, of movie and TV producers. They're actually having conversations, which seems like a step in the right direction. Of course, who knows how long those conversations will last, but at least they're having them now. So that's a plus. Um, One strike related piece of news that I wanted to mention right up here at the top of the show is that uh, Amazon Prime Video has canceled the peripheral and a league of their own after previously saying, hey, yeah, you can have uh, second seasons. They're basically like they renewed these shows and now they're un-renewing them. And I think Prime Video is one of the first companies to explicitly blame the strikes for why they're making these decisions, which um, is kind of a... uh, you know, that's very rich coming from them because they have the power to end these strikes by giving the WGA and SAG-AFTRA uh, a fair deal. So um anyway, yeah, it just seems a little disingenuous to blame uh, their decisions on what's happening there. But um, I just wanted to raise that up right up here at the top of the show because I know a lot of people especially are big fans of the League of Their Own. Um That show had a, a big like vocal fan base and this just
1: yeah. just felt- so. Well, that and Amazon, I mean, of any of these companies like Amazon and Apple are the two like companies where they are awash with money and the whole streaming thing is just a way to sell other stuff like they're not mm-hmm. necessarily dependent on the streaming revenue on its own. Now, I think like Amazon is starting to take a hard look at how much they're spending on Prime Video and being like, all right, you know, let's try to reel it in a little bit maybe. But like, but yeah, it, it them in particular going let's go ahead and blame the strikes and cancel these shows. Like, I don't know that, that seems like a bit of a, them doing it specifically seems a bit, seems a bit, it it tastes wrong. Like I didn't watch either of these shows, but I, but I mourn the people, people seemed very upset about the league of their own show being canceled. And I feel really bad for them
0: yeah and like you know again the the optics of canceling a league of their own which is this like female fronted show versus you know a show like that prime video also has like citadel which costs you know hundreds of millions of dollars and like did not perform nearly as as well as they expected and they just feel very pot committed with that show that show is like alive and well and they're talking about spinoffs and like you know doing uh that show has a second season renewal. And I think Joe Russo is going to direct every episode of season two. And they're just really like throwing more money at that problem. And so for them to cancel a league of their own while keeping Citadel going, is just not the best look. So, um, I just hate it for, for fans who are like really into a league of their own and, and the peripheral, just like having, uh, just having to suffer the indignity of listening to Amazon blame the strikes for, for their business decisions is just sort of an unfortunate situation. So, uh, okay, let's, let's with all of that, uh, let's move on past that and get into what happened at the box office this past weekend. So, uh, the big question I think of the, the weekend, Ryan is like, how was blue beetle going to perform? So how did it perform?
1: uh, Oh, what a complicated question! Um, look, okay, so here's the thing: Blue Beetle is going to have, it's going to be the movie in the record books that dethroned Barbie. It took the number one spot at the box office, so like after a four week run at the top, Blue Beetle dethroned Barbie. So it, it's going to have its place, but uh, it had a twenty five million dollar domestic debut. Um, you know, and the movie has a reported hundred and four million dollar budget. Uh, budget aside, $25 million is not what we're used to seeing for a superhero movie, even a modest success. Uh, it's kind of rough. Uh, it also only had an $18 million overseas debut, which is the much bigger problem. Um, and that was in 66 markets. That was actually worse than Wonder Woman 1984, at the height of the pandemic uh there's not been as much talk about that that i've seen because there's a lot of focus on domestic box office and this is why i tend to focus a little bit more on the worldwide picture and we'll get into why a little bit more of that in a second but like yeah that international rollout is so grim um so you know as of right now even with the monday numbers it's at 45.7 million worldwide uh i mean you know, you would be very lucky if this movie got to, I mean, I'm talking very lucky if this movie got to 200 million worldwide before it was done and against a $104 million budget, that's just not going to cut it.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I saw some mixed messages about this movie over the weekend because I, I don't remember it. I don't, I'm not sure if you have these numbers right in front of you, uh, Ryan, but like, I don't remember what the uh, expectation was for blue beetle opening, but it, it the mixed messaging I saw was kind of like, oh, like this movie, you know, knocked Barbie, Barbie off. And like, you know, maybe it it performed a little bit better than expected, or maybe that was just like, it's grading on a curve, right? Because of the fact that this was originally meant to go on HBO max, which is now max. Um, So what what do you make of that? Like sort of, um, I don't know, split reaction to how blue beetle performed.
1: Yeah, again, I think it's got to do with the fact that again, this is the movie that dethroned Barbie, right? So that's like grabby in the in the initial bit of it. But I mean, the financials are what they are. Like I, I've talked about this ad nauseum the the finan the 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 financial realities of releasing a very expensive movie direct to streaming never made any sense to me. I never understood how those movies justified their existence financially. So you know, look when you decide we're going to put this movie in theaters, you are saying you know, Hey, here's what works. You know, the expectation is that this movie is going to be able to draw for us financially. And this didn't, this is now look, and I'm not, by the way, I have liked, uh, I, I still haven't seen Shazam free of the gods. I liked both the flash and Boo, blue beetle. Like I'm not hating on DC, but all three of the movies that DC has released this year have performed very bad financially. Now this is the less bad of the three, but that's still not good. Yeah. Um you know Shazam Fury of the Gods is one of the biggest superhero movie flops of all time. I crunched those numbers. Like I don't, you know, I I was hesitant to put that headline out a few months ago, but when I really looked at it, I was like that's it's pretty bad. Yeah. And the Flash is so what I'm saying is that like yes, you're not wrong that like there's you know people are going to look at it and be like, "Oh my god, it it defeated Barbie," but you kind of have to look at the movie on its own you know individual wavelength there and the numbers, as we understand them as the movie going public, you know, outside of studio accounting, it doesn't look great. Yeah. Um, you know, so th- I was going to ask
0: you what you thought about, you know, uh, you wrote an article about um, Blue Beetles. Brutal opening weekend is very bad news for DC. And like not only the fact that this is the third DC movie this year to bomb or or at least like not perform. I mean, maybe it's fair to say bomb, uh, but I, I look,
1: I, I'm willing to say bomb for all three of them. I mean, Blue Beetle's kind of on the borderline, but I think if it has like a bad second weekend, it's fair to say bomb,
0: yeah. So, you know, obviously, like that's not great, that's not what you want if you're DC, but I'm wondering, like, what you think about the future of DC, especially when it comes to this character. Because there's a lot of, again, mixed messaging about this, the future of Blue Beetle, uh, in the you know, getting caught in the middle of this weird, um, uh, change at the top of what's going on at DC, this this sort of uh, regime switch over to the um, the James Gunn, Peter Safran era. Um, and I think the what they ultimately settled on, which I don't think is what they started out by saying, but I think what they ultimately settled on is uh, Blue Beetle will appear in the DC universe, the new, um, you know, this is going to be one of the few characters that was not originated by that, or one of the few uh, iterations of the character that was not originated by them, but is going to be like grandfathered in to their their grand plan here. Um, so, what does this financial performance of Blue Beetle say about the or mean for the future of this character? Do you think?
1: I think the thing is that like wisely Warner Brothers and and whoever was in the decision making room didn't explicitly tie this to like the DCEU, aka the Snyderverse. However. No, there's no way that James Gunn and Peter Saffron are are gonna take a character that was attached to a not successful film. Now, now, let's be clear, like critically, uh, and and audience reception to Blue Beetle has been pretty good. but if the if the movie does not perform financially, there's no way they're gonna take that character in. Now, I think that like, and we've talked about this before, that Gunn and Saffron were handed a rough deal where they had four movies they still needed to, like, release under the old DC regime, and you can't just say these movies don't count or nobody's going to go see them. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, like, my... Look, and again, I have no proof of this, but my my read on it is that, like, Gunn and Saffron were kind of just, hey, let's leave that door open so it seems important, but I don't think they have any intention of bringing Blue Beetle
0: over. Yeah, I mean, I you know, my guess would be they're not planning a Blue Beetle 2 immediately, especially after this opening weekend, but I, I did wonder if you thought that they might uh, I don't know sort of follow through on that um, on what they were saying behind the scenes or, or no. sort of like uh, publicly or whatever and like continue this character in a supporting capacity in another movie or do you think it like would
1: shock me it would okay. shock me at this point I at th- and I've talked a little bit more about this on Twitter over the weekend and stuff but I think both Marvel and DC are in bad spots right now and I think like really at this point like the Batman worked one because it's Batman, but two, because it was a completely standalone movie that nobody had to deal with anything. You could just go see that movie. I really believe that gun and Saffron are going to have to just like, you got to just abandon everything and start over to have any chance of, of getting people back on board. This DC, as it has existed and as it currently exists is not working. People do not care. Yeah. You know, like people don't care enough To justify the expense these movies require, you know, there, there's an audience for it. Sure. It's not big enough. So I, I, I continue to be, I think the most adamant person I know that is like, this is going to be a full reboot as hard as you could reboot something. Like, I think they're abandoning everything so
0: okay yeah that's uh that's a shame for the folks behind blue beetle um you know the timing is everything and they just got sort of stuck in a bad spot and also it i feel like-
1: terrible not only that the strikes didn't help because like you couldn't have the cast out there promoting and we're seeing right. how much that's really hurting stuff and you know that's the idea right the strikes are supposed to be disruptive but it does suck and i feel like but luckily like uh angel manuel soto the director like he just got hired to direct like that dave bautista and, and um Uh, Jason Momoa, buddy cop movie. So like, you know, he's not suffering, which is nice, but uh, it's a real bummer for all involved for sure.
0: Yeah, um, so tell me about Strays. I was I've been curious about this movie ever since I saw the first trailer. This is the the uh, R rated talking dog movie with the voices of Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx, and I think Will Forte is playing a live action role in it. Um, I, there's been a lot of talk about like what R rated comedies mean to to people these days anymore, and like can they be successful? And I think no hard feelings. The Jennifer Lawrence comedy uh, earlier this year, like. I don't know, what's. I guess before we get into strays, what is your um, your assessment of how No Hard Feelings has done sort of in the in the long-ish run now that we're like, you know, a, a few, several weeks, maybe a, a couple months at this point out from its release?
1: Um, I think No Hard Feelings, so like now, okay, the, the one thing that you must take into account is that the production budget was $45 million and I'm sure a ton of that went to Jennifer Lawrence. Um, but just looking at like the, what, It was able to do it. $83.5 million. And Sony, by the way, you know, they have a good deal with Netflix. Mm -hmm. They do not have a streaming service. They're going to get a lot of VOD money. I think this is going to end up in the end being a moneymaker for them. But maybe not through raw theatrical, but it, you know, I think that if you can get $83 million worth of ticket sales from an R-rated comedy under the right circumstances, I think it shows that that's still viable. Yeah. Um, That I would have liked to see that movie made for 35 million as opposed to 45 million. But I think the point remains that, you know, you can generate, there is an audience there for sure. Um, yeah. So
0: the re- reason I brought that up was because like this whole conversation about like, are R rated comedies dead at the box office? And like, you know, they, they kind of were there for a while. And, and I don't know if strays is going to, um, you know, be the, uh, the shot in the arm that that specific subgenre or niche or whatever, uh, needs to really like, you know, uh, convince other studios, hey, let's dump a bunch of money into producing a huge swath of R-rated comedies now. Uh, but um, how did that film perform, Ryan Stray's?
1: Very poorly. Um, I, I uh, Yeah, look, I, I was sort of optimistic about this one heading into the weekend, but it, it came in like around half of what uh, sort of Uh, like unofficial prediction and tracking. And again, now this movie has a $46 million budget, apparently, which is a lot more than I was hoping for. Uh, I'd kind of hoped that they'd got it for 30 or less, but um, it only made 8.2 million domestic, and it was fifth on the charts uh, behind uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, in it's third weekend. So uh, just bad news all around. And I think this is one that really suffered from you, Will Ferrell, Jamie Foxx, Will Forte, uh, God, the, the cast was huge. There was a bunch of other, they could have been out there promoting this movie and I think that would have moved the needle a lot. Yeah. I just don't think people were as aware. I think we take for granted like how much like those talk show circuits and things like that get movies on your average person's radar. And I think this is a movie that just wasn't on everyone's radar. And, you know, so yeah, I don't, it, it's going to, I mean, who knows? Over time, this could be one that, through streaming, through VOD, through whatever, it kind of gets to a point where it's not a disaster. But uh, I, don't, I don't. It's clearly not going to be a success, so it's not going to help the art rated comedies cause at all.
0: Yeah, um, tell me a little bit about Meg Two: The Trench. This, this movie is uh, has gone past three hundred million worldwide. What, what do you think about that? And, and sort of, how does this movie stand in your um, estimation right now?
1: Yeah, so this is like what I was talking about a minute ago with Blue Beetle and sort of focusing a little bit more on the international box office and stuff like that because there's such a heavy focus on domestic. Um, This is an example of like, you know, hey, look, the global, you know, their moviegoers are all around the world, everybody. And uh, Make to the Trench has only made $67.2 million domestically. It has, however, made $251.1 million internationally, meaning it is at $318.4 million worldwide. Now against a 130 million dollar budget that's not bad. Uh it's probably going to finish closer to 400 million than 300 million meaning it is probably going to end up making more than Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Is it going to make as much as the first meg? No. Is it going to be a huge money winner? No. But for a 130 million dollar budget if you get to 400 million worldwide, that's a win all the day all day. You know, especially when you then look at the idea that like that's pretty much at a break even point so Once, you you know, VOD, Blu-ray, whatever else, that's all profit. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to do just fine. And it's one of those things that like it's not a it's not a movie. A lot of people in North America are talking about, but there was an audience for it very clearly. So, you know, it's kind of a late summer. It's a nice little late summer surprise that like uh, uh, exhibitors could use.
0: So do you think that we're going to get a Meg three with like a more limited budget then?
1: That would be my best guess. Yeah, that like they'll they'll probably try to make one, but I just don't think that you get Statham back or, you know, you probably do it, uh, you know, like, I don't know if you go full, like, direct-to-video, but you might try to find, like, an in-between there um, where it gets, like, a more limited release and you try to maybe do it for, you know, 45, 50 million or less with some slightly less impressive effects or something. (laughs) Um, I don't know, like, but it doesn't always have to be a bad thing. I talk about, not infrequently that deep blue C three, which was direct to video is like a shockingly good movie. Um, so some, sometimes that can work, you know, so, um, who knows, but, uh, and I'm serious about that, by the way, like if, if you like the original deep blue C, go see deep blue C three, it's like a really, it's surprisingly good, but okay. So um, there's
0: some, there's some shark precedent then for, for a third movie. (laughs) And there is
1: actually some, some precedent in, in the shark genre there. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I don't know, Like, as someone who likes to see, these things work out just because it's better for theaters, better for exhibitors, better for everybody. Like, you know, I'm happy about this. And like, let's be clear, critics hated this movie, but the audience score for Meg two is higher than it was for the original. So, wow. You know, movie goers are clearly into it, even though it's been a lot. Most people have said it's a pretty messy movie. It's a weird movie. Um, you know, I look, I don't know it, it people want to go see Jason Statham fight big sharks. And that's been evident here. So, yeah, what do you got? You know, what more to say?
0: Uh, well, speaking of what more to say, we, we've talked a lot about Elemental and the, the surprise legs that that movie has shown. And I don't really know if there's much more to say here, um, you know, on this podcast that we haven't talked about already. But uh, one big, um, I guess, hurdle or, or sort of a benchmark that this movie has cleared now is that it's overtaken Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse at the international box office, which is just incredibly impressive. Again, I mean, that's that's the word that we've been using over and over talking about the the legs of Elemental here. Um, But given the amount of, um, I don't know, I I guess like uh, press and attention and hype and uh, conversation that was around across the Spider-Verse, all of those things when you're talking about Elemental, just completely paled in comparison, right? So the fact yeah. that this movie has now overtaken it uh, internationally is just like a again a very impressive uh, achievement that it's his. I don't, I don't know if you have any uh, like additional thoughts on this that you haven't that we haven't already like talked to death about <laughs> on the podcast, right? No, now,
1: just just my feel good movie of the summer, like feel good story, and and I think that like it's nice that Pixar is clearly going to have a theatrical future, and it's nice that like it's an original movie doing it. So this is what Pixar does well, and. You know, so hopefully this means that you know the next big Pixar original gets a big push, and you know this is kind of a building block to to get to a bigger, better place. So I'm 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 very happy about this and very optimistic about it. Uh,
0: another thing I, that I'm guessing made you very happy, Ryan, is the news about these physical releases. I, I mean, okay, so to be fair, we've we've dunked on Disney a lot uh, for many reasons, and I think all of it has been valid and warranted it's not like we're just like going around uh dunking on studios for no reason i, I really feel like we're you know we're, we're telling it how we see it. we're calling it like we see it or whatever uh but i, I think this is very much a case of uh, credit where it's due they, they are listening to the market and um and making a decision that i think all of us are are happy to see here so uh the two things i'm talking about are prey the the predator prequel has finally gotten a physical media release after its debut on Hulu. And then I think it was either earlier this morning or maybe yesterday, it was announced that um, The Mandalorian, Loki, and WandaVision are getting limited edition 4K and Blu-ray releases. And I think there was a big kerfuffle online when WandaVision's home video, or maybe it was like a digital video release, was announced because it was sort of like dressed up in this steelbook packaging and there was no actual physical disc. It was just like, you know, yeah, that was through a like thing. a
1: thing. Yeah, that was through like a third party and they were just releasing a fancy steelbook that didn't actually have the disc in it.
0: Which is just so strange on so many levels. But it's just like, here's the thing that you can like put on your shelf, but it's really just a digital code that you can, you know, add to your digital library or whatever. And a lot of people were like, what the hell, man? Like, you know, physical, physical media is like something that we... Care a lot about, and obviously, like as we've seen time and time and time again over the past several years now, uh, that's like really the only most like reliable way that you can have the thing that you love and want to watch at any given moment. Because things get yanked off streaming services at all times, things get censored on streaming services, things get edited and and uh, tweaked and you know outright pulled. And and people have had instances where they've like thought that they've purchased movies from. Uh, whatever, Amazon and iTunes and like those movies have disappeared over time. So like, yeah, those are just long term
1: rentals, essentially. Yeah. uh, Which people, which people, many people still do not realize that, like, if you buy something through iTunes, it's only until the license runs out, you know, like, the the, you know, any day and same thing like streaming services like Spotify for music, like there's no guarantees there.
0: Yeah. So uh, what were your thoughts when you heard that they're actually investing in these physical products here?
1: Uh, absolutely thrilled. Prey was one of the best movies that came out last year. It, I, I think, even people at Disney are like, we probably should have put that in theaters. Um, but uh, it's so nice that they're like, okay, you know what? Maybe it's not a lot of money relative to the overall picture, but if people want to give us money, why should we not do that? Like, there's, you know, because I think that it was just that old thinking of streaming means exclusivity, and if this is the only place you can watch it, then we'll get your money. Well, I think the thing is that we're seeing like, like people are going to subscribe to what they're going to subscribe to and they're going to get what they want to get. You might as well give people the option to get something the way they want to get it. Like I'm still going to subscribe to Disney plus, but you bet your ass I'm going to buy those Mandalorian steel books, you know, like, and same thing with prey. Like I'm not, not subscribing to Hulu anymore, but I'm definitely going to put that on my shelf. Mm-hmm. You know, do barbarian next. I already paid on Etsy to get this really cool bootleg of a uh, barbarian, but I'd, pay for for an official one too like just you know <laughs> let me give you my money like i'm you know I, I know disney doesn't need it but i'm happy to give it to you if you give me what i want yeah so just it's smart it's good business there's no reason not to do it
0: yeah that's the thing is like i, I don't know how much it costs to you know uh, manufacture and and all that stuff like all the manufacturing costs that go into creating 4k uh discs and blu-ray discs and things like that but it just can't possibly be that much and you know it's kind of the same mentality of of Warner Brothers being like, oh, we we're going to put Blue Beetle on streaming, let's put it in theaters because we can make some money that way that's actually tangible and like we can hold in our hands as opposed to, you know, adding value to a streaming service this is the same thing, but they're just like catering to uh, an audience of people who actually have said over and over again and have proven when the when they've had the opportunity that they will actually give you money for a thing. So like, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah why not it's, create it's, The thing.
1: It, Cause I've said that before. It's like, look, I understand the market might not be huge to, compared to what it used to be, but like money is money. It doesn't make sense to, to if there, if there is enough of an audience to justify that release, then give it to people, you know, like it just doesn't make sense not to do it. Like, and it's, and the other thing I would say too, for some people is that like a 4k physical release, not, Compressed through streaming is gonna be the best way to watch this stuff. I just yeah. watched Blade on 4K yesterday because, you know, it was the movie's twenty fifth anniversary, and I was like genuinely shocked. The 4K looked incredible. Like that movie came out in ninety eight, and I was like, you know, aside from some really rough CGI, like which is just part of, you know, the day. But so like I'm very excited to watch like the Mandalorian season two finale on like a four K disc. You know, I'm so excited about that. And same thing yeah. with Grace. So You know, but again, let cool. Let me give you my money. I'm probably going to give Disney $35 for that price deal book. Cool. Sounds good. (laughs) Happy to do it. You know, so and I'm not going to be alone there. Just at a time when, you know, you're losing revenue from cord cutting and all this other stuff, studios have got to figure out a way to make up revenue. And it's probably not going to come from any one place. Yeah, you don't turn money away.
0: So before we go, Ryan, I just want to ask you, like, looking ahead to this coming weekend, what are the big box office stories that you're keeping an eye on? Uh,
1: The big one uh, is Gran Turismo, the Neil Blomkamp uh, racing movie, which is kind of a video game movie, but kind of not because it's, like, based on a real story. Uh, It supposedly has a $100 million budget, which is a little, like, uh, that makes my butthole pucker a little bit, but, like, um, it... uh, uh, the review, the audience score on it is like in the 98% or so like people, cause they've been, Sony's been doing like sneak previews of it for two weeks because the cast can't promote it. But uh, I, I don't have, I, I, I don't feel particularly optimistic about it. it. It doesn't, I just don't know if it's going to be able to, Because you know, in a hundred million dollar budget, you got to make probably 300 million worldwide and, you know, I don't know, but I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I've heard great things. I've heard it's very crowd-pleasing, and I kind of would like to see Neil Blomkamp get an actual theatrical hit again because he hasn't had one since District 9, which is kind of surprising. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes, and I don't, like, you know, can it make $20 million to overtake Blue Beetle? I don't know.
0: Okay, well, yeah, maybe we'll find out uh, next Tuesday. Maybe I'll I'll have you back on the show, and we'll talk about that, so... All right. I think that'll do it for this part of the show. Let's take a quick break, and then I'll be back with Brad to talk about the water cooler stuff. Thanks for joining, Ryan. My pleasure. Joining me now to gather around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to is Slash Film Editor Brad Omen. Brad, what's going on?
2: Hey, that's me. What's up?
0: Uh, All right. Well, not much. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, It's been a little while since you've been on the podcast. I figured it'd be a good time to... Go back to the old water cooler and talk about what we've been doing. So we haven't really been doing yeah, or reading it's much. It's been
2: over a month since I've been on the show. What the fuck?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, Brad. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's get into what we've been watching. You and I both had the chance to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. What did you make of this?
2: Uh, not only have I seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, I've seen it three times. Wow. Wow. I- I love this movie. Um, I, I saw it the first time and really enjoyed it. I saw it a second time because I did an interview with uh, director Jeff Rowe, which you can read on Slash Film. It's great. We dug into a lot of spoiler territory. Uh, and you can check that out on the site in full. I will put
0: a um, link to it in the show notes.
2: Yeah. And then I saw it for a third time just for good measure because uh, my my sister hadn't seen it and wanted to. Uh, and we, we even took my mom to see it. And she also enjoyed the hell out of it. It's just uh, – it's, it's awesome. You know, um, I, I, of course, have nostalgia for the original uh, live-action Ninja Turtles. Uh, the, the first movie I maintain is still a fantastically weird and fun uh, comic book movie. Um, the second one gets a little bit more cartoony, and the third one is abysmal. But that first one is great. Um, and this one really takes a refreshing angle on it. Not only is the animation outstanding, it's got this cool sketchbook style look to it that isn't as refined as Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and that gives it uh, a certain extra bit of uh, style visually. And then on top of that, the dynamic of the uh, the young cast, having actual teenagers play the Turtles, is really just a great decision by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. And the dynamic between the actors has been fantastic. They recorded them together, so they have a lot of uh, energy that carries over. And they really just, just nailed it. It's, it's a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it.
0: I love this movie as well, Brad. I think this is my favorite Ninja Turtles anything that has existed and i grew up watching you know that that show as well and and really like being all in on turtles i'm sure i dressed up as turtles you know for halloween and did that whole thing i had the little pizza shooter uh toy and all the action figures and the whole thing so um i yeah i love this the look of it is so incredible like you were saying like the just the way that um that color and light are used in this movie the the glows and sort of like neon looking effects and yeah hazes and a lot of it is set at night and uh yeah just the the um vibrancy of, of the colors i thought was like incredible it's a very different look than what you see in the spider-verse movies but um but it just works so wonderfully for these characters and like the characterizations are so great i thought the humor was like completely on point all the way across which is very rare for me i think this is one of the funniest movies of the year so far and it really is yeah um it's also just like incredibly uh effective at what it's trying to do which is this you know relatively simple story of like feeling like an outsider and wanting to belong and hitting on all of these like uh recognizable universal themes that everybody can experience and everybody knows what it's like to feel this stuff and i feel like that's what seth uh seth uh, rogan and evan goldberg are so good at tapping into is getting a little bit of that heart in with the comedy and like my experience with them has been fairly mixed as as screenwriters like sometimes that balance is a little bit off to me but this time I thought they just completely nailed it this might be my favorite thing that they've written which is probably saying a lot cuz i know people love you know super bad and and whatever but like i just think everything is working on such um you know in in such a unison uh all toward the same goal in this movie that it just i, I yeah i found myself just like completely bowled over by it i loved it heck yeah um what do you think about the idea of the they've announced that they're going to do a tv series and then another movie like leading i guess bridging the gap into another movie a sequel um what do you think about that the idea of a tv show i do you think that they're going to be able to sort of keep the same level of quality and care and all of that or is it just going to be like oh it's paramount plus it's tv who cares we're just going to, like, not give it the budget and uh, creative stuff that we, you know, th- that it deserves. And we'll just, like, put all of our money toward the next big movie. What do you think about the, the idea so, of the show?
2: I think that what they said for the, um, for the show is that the animated series will be a 2D animated series. So... Uh, It won't look exactly like the movie does. I hope that they still carry that, like, kind of hand-drawn sketchbook style over to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because even in 2D animation, that would be something that would look cool and and refreshing. Um, I don't know, because, like, honestly, like... I'm wondering how much you can do with an animated series that's meant to kind of bridge the gap between the two if you don't, you know... You probably don't want anything too significant to happen to the characters as you leave right. the movie because you want to give them somewhere to go in the movie and you want the movie to be, like, the next big kind of evolution for them as, as characters, for what that means. So, like, I imagine, you know, it'll probably be just something kind of similar to the original animated series where kind of just, like, you know, crime-fighting kind of stuff where there's, they have the you know, different villains of the week and stuff like that. I mean, and it might just be a good way for them to... You you know, play with the ensemble since they have all those other mutant characters who some of them go back and forth between villains and, and whatnot. So um, maybe it'll just give them a way to, to do that and figure some some stuff out like where where they want to go for a sequel.
0: Yeah, I, I just have to say like this this movie, I think restored my faith in the IP uh, hellscape that we're living in right now. It's, it, you know, a lot, we spend a lot of time thinking and, and I spend a lot of time like spinning out about, how every single thing is based on something else. And there's just, there's so much bad stuff that comes down the pipeline. And a movie like this reminds me that just because it's associated with a project that was, or a a franchise or an IP that was popular 30 years ago or whatever, does not mean that it has to be creatively bankrupt. Like there is a way to, you know, take these things and actually do something interesting and fun and fresh with them. Um, and and it's also like not overly complicated too so many action movies these days are like you know go get the thing in order to twist the flip on the next switch that will take you to the you know it's just like the video gamification of movie of like blockbuster movie uh plots has just made everything feel so convoluted and this movie is like fairly stripped down and um, yeah, just like, it's not trying to bite off more than it could chew. It, it has like, it's just, yeah, watching this and, and seeing what Tony Gilroy did with Andor, uh, in the star Wars universe, it's just made me be like, okay, I, you know, sometimes we can be in safe hands with this stuff. So, um, all right. Well, uh, I just wanted to mention one other thing that I've been watching, which is this, uh, Netflix documentary series called untold. I think that's a, like a franchise, um, or sort of like an umbrella term for a sports documentary that is like a bunch of different types of sports can sort of fall under the old untold banner. So the one that I watched is called untold colon swamp Kings, and it's a four episode series. There's there, each episode is like 45 minutes long. And it's all about the university of Florida football team from 2005 to about 2009. And I was there from Oh four until Oh eight. Um, so this was all like very familiar to me. Um, Tim Tebow was the quarterback at that time. Urban Meyer came in as the coach. Both of those guys are featured heavily in this documentary series. Um, Florida won uh, two national championships during that stretch. And so, um, yeah, I was just like curious to hear from the players here because there are a lot of players interviewed in this footage. Um, I, I was familiar with all of the media narratives and everything that was going on. I'd heard a lot from Urban Meyer um, but you don't really get to hear very much from the, uh, f- from the players when, or, or you didn't at that time anyway, it may be slightly different now. Um, so I, was, I wanted to hear what they had to say about what their time was like, um, you know, in this, this very intense period of sports history. Um, I think this documentary series is like, okay. Uh, if you, know who Tim Tebow is, if you know who Urban Meyer is already, you're probably not going to learn too much here. Um, If you're completely unfamiliar with this whole period, then you'll obviously like, it may be of more value to you. Um, But there are a few things in it that rubbed me the wrong way. There's a lot of like weird, Tim Tebow and, and Urban Meyer, obviously like white guys who are very prominent in the national media spotlight. And the way that this documentary interviews some minority players and then sort of uses their stories to prop up Tim Tebow and Urban Meyer is, is honestly reminiscent of how things were at that time from, from, you know, Oh, four oh five all the way through to oh nine and it, it rubbed me the wrong way then and it rubs me the wrong way now i can't believe that the filmmakers of this documentary series are kind of making the same mistakes uh even though they kind of like actively touch on that topic in the documentary itself it's like wait are you guys paying attention to what you're talking about here because you're just doing the same thing here uh but anyway i think it, it was it's a relatively uh easy watch for anybody who cares about college football and if you're interested in that whole thing i'm, I'm not really going to watch any more untold stuff unless the subject matter like really jumped out to get me. And this, this particular subject matter was like so designed to hook me because I have such a personal, personal connection to that material that uh, I wanted to check it out. So that's on Netflix. It's called untold swamp Kings. If you want to check it out, Brad, what have you been watching?
2: Uh, in the similar sports arena, I watched a, a documentary series called muscles and mayhem, the unauthorized story of American gladiators. Have you heard of this?
0: I think I was talking to BJ about this. I didn't know, and I have never seen this one. There, there was another ESPN documentary series that she and I talked about on an episode of the podcast. But it Yeah, was, 30, 30 for 30
2: did one. I haven't watched that one yet.
0: Yeah, so I watched that one. I haven't seen this one. What is this one like?
2: So this one is, is a five-episode series. Uh, they're like around 40-minute episodes, uh, and it, it digs into the, the history of American Gladiators, how it started, uh, it talks to a lot of the people who were actual American Gladiators, runs through, you know, uh, its its insane popularity and then eventual downfall. And uh, it's it's pretty good. You know, they they got all the right people to talk to. Um, it does has some fun, like, uh, with interludes and, like, you know, it has archival footage and stuff and clips from the show, obviously. But then it uses, like, 1980s uh, Saturday morning cartoon-style animation to do, like, certain dramatizations and funny recreations and things like that. Um, and it's got a little bit of heart to it, too. You know, hearing some of the gladiators talk about their – their past and especially some of the the guys talk about kind of growing up in uh you know not not necessarily toxic families but like uh you know a family dynamic where like their father was very hard to please and like they were always trying to gain their approval and that's really what led them to be like these these bodybuilders uh and always put like their their strength first and like you know not not cry and things like this and like Mm -hmm. hearing them and watching them kind of like talk about this stuff and get emotional and that kind of stuff. it's it, it works really well uh and it's a fascinating dive into this the series that you might not know a lot about the behind the scenes because it's just you know this pop culture footnote where you used to watch the games because they were the fun to enjoy back in the day but it's uh right. yeah it's, it's really interesting to dig back into the, uh, the history of this like you know little moment in pop culture
0: the 30 for 30 focuses a lot on the guy who created the whole thing that's kind oh, of okay. the, the lens through which it's it's presented um and they they do interviews with some of the gladiators, but they they mentioned like a lot of them didn't want to talk to the filmmakers behind that documentary series because they had such animosity toward the guy who you know created the whole thing um so I wonder if they got the people that they couldn't get for that documentary for the one that you just mentioned that you watched like maybe they would because it's not really uh, about that guy maybe they were interested in in talking to the where'd you say this was is this a netflix thing
2: yeah it's on netflix and i think that that's probably the case because honestly there were uh they got all the key gladiators like there's not any one like main gladiator uh, especially from the original cast and stuff that they didn't get um so they yeah i, I want
0: to say nitro was the main one that they didn't have in the and 30, he is, 30
2: he's one of the key players in the netflix one okay cool yeah,
0: yeah awesome okay interesting um so yeah, would you? I, I guess it sounds like you would recommend watching this, even if you didn't grow up watching American Gladiators.
2: Yeah, for sure. Because if anything, you'll you'll see the show, and it's kind of wild how it all came together, especially just kind of how uh messy and like how much a lack of thought was put into er- the early versions of the the show uh and like how they didn't they were like oh we, we didn't really think about worrying about people getting injured during these yeah. competitions <laughs> and stuff it's like we should probably do something about that <laughs> uh okay you also had a chance to see
0: uh, a big movie that's i think opening wide this weekend tell me about that
2: yeah, I saw Grand Turismo. Um Sony Pictures has been doing these like sneak preview screenings for the past couple weekends to start building some word of mouth for the movie since they don't have uh you know a cast to really support promotion for it right now. Because of the uh, the ongoing actor strikes and and writer strikes as well, so I went to a sneak preview screening. Uh, I was they they had them all over the country too, so it wasn't like an exclusive thing. Um, and there was like a little Q and A that they had shot, I think, at like one of the, the Alamo Draft House locations, maybe or something like that, where Neil Blomkamp was there and the producers and the the actual. Uh, guy uh, who inspired the, the true story. So uh, I really like this movie, too. It is uh, it doesn't reinvent the, the racing drama or the underdog sports movie or anything like that, uh, but it just works really well. It works as good as, as any movie like that uh, you'd anticipate it. It has, you know, uh, the, this great Rocky meets Days of Thunder kind of vibe to it. Uh, the the way the, the racing was shot is pretty impressive. It's, it's intense. It's suspenseful. Um, it's got a pretty good emotional core. To it, and uh, David Harbor really like is someone who who elevates the this movie just because he he makes for this great, uh, fa- kind of father figure. He's the guy who coaches uh, this gamer who becomes a, a professional racer because he's so good at, at Gran Turismo. He gets an opportunity to go through this academy to become uh, an actual driver, and uh, having David Harbor with him every step of the way, he just um, David Harbor, I think you know really is. Uh, He's a great on Stranger Things, obviously, but like he's such a great character actor, and I, um, I, I hold him in kind of like the same esteem of somebody like a Philip Seymour Hoffman. Where David Harbor, just like if he's in the movie, like you know he's going to be great, in it. even if his character is forgettable. Like you'll probably remember David Harbor, you know, in that in that movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so yeah, that's
0: great. So what did you think about like? And Neil Blomkamp is such a fascinating figure because he came out swinging and came out like on top of the world with district nine. And it seems like every consecutive movie that he's made has been worse and worse, if not financially than like critically, um, do you think this is the movie that's going to like turn his career around? Is this like the equivalent of um, of The Visit for M. Night Shyamalan or something like that?
2: Uh, I don't know if it's the kind of thing where it'll turn his career around, but it would be nice if it were, were something that allowed him to like continue to broaden his horizons because, uh, as I learned in the Q&A, he actually uh, kind of uh, sought out doing a movie like this because it wasn't going to be kind of like a dark, fucked up kind of sci-fi thing. He wanted to do something... Uh, that was uplifting. And he actually has like a hobby and interest uh, in, in racing cars and stuff like that. He actually had uh, a few of the cars that are, um, are, are featured in like the racing circuit in, in this movie. So he actually had like a passion himself for, for racing and an interest in Gran Turismo. Hmm. Um, so I think this might've just been, you know, a matter of circumstance being at the right place at the the right time and him looking for something like that. But uh, you know, it's, he's, he, he, brings you know a, a great filmmaker's eye to a movie like this and he does some in- interesting visual things they have great drone drone photography of, of the races they did a lot of uh practical racing stuff and uh he uses like the video game aesthetics in a way that enhances you know the the movie without feeling like there's a couple times where it feels like it's like eh, he didn't really need to do that but there's there's uh, a lot of other ways where he fluidly and and naturally brings like the Gran turismo video game style into the the movie itself so cool yeah
0: Okay, what else have you been happening? Uh, what else have you been watching recently?
2: Uh, I also saw Blue Beetle, and it's kind of a bummer that more people aren't seeing it. Um, I, it it's not necessarily like uh, you know the the next great comic movie or anything like that, but I it's one of those movies where I wish it came out like five or six years ago or something like that because it's arriving at a time where people are getting kind of bored with superheroes. We, we've seen a lot of the same stuff over and over again. The DC universe is changing over, and so people are just kind of like, eh, all right, we'll wait and see what what new stuff is. Because um, there's a, there's a lot to like in this movie. It's unfortunately it, it is the superhero stuff in this movie that feels uh, just kind of there. It's not necessarily super exciting. The the best thing it has going for it in that regard is it has this like kind of mid '90s superhero charm uh, where it's, it's very earnest and a little bit uh, goofy uh, and even a little bit strange. Like it has some you know some really kind of gnarly body horror stuff because of how the the scarab attaches itself to the the main character and you know turns him into blue beetle. Um, but for me, like the, the part that worked the best, and it's a shame that, you know, we probably won't get to see it continue in any form is the family dynamic that there is between the main character Jaime, uh, who's played by, uh, uh Zolo Maladuania from Cobra Kai and, uh, his, you know, his Mexican family who is like very much steeped in authentic Mexican culture. Um, it was very impressively done. There's a lot of heart there to it. And just the. The way the family uh, connects with each other, how they're a big part of the story um, and how it, it all ties, tie, just ties together and adds a lot of heart uh, and, and emotion to it. Um, and so I, I, I wish that overall the superhero stuff combined with that family dynamic a little bit better, because I would have liked to have seen this in a movie that was able to get a little bit more attention, had a little more sure footing. Um, so it's, it's kind of a bummer to see a movie like this kind of stumble and likely, you know, be pushed to the side for whatever else is coming. But uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I asked Ryan on the first half of the show about what he thinks about uh, Blue Beetle's future in the DC universe. Like, obviously, they're not really going to be gung ho for Blue Beetle 2 based on how the film performed in its opening weekend. But I asked him if he thought that maybe James Gunn and Peter Safran would be interested in incorporating that character and, and that actor playing that character into the DCU moving forward in like a supporting capacity or something, maybe not giving him his own movie or whatever. And Ryan didn't think so because of how poorly blue beetle performed. But what do you think about that?
2: Uh, you know, it would be possible for them, I think to backdoor him in there, you know, cause you don't necessarily need the blue beetle movie to be successful in order to bring a character like that into the fray. If he's not like the main attraction of the movie, you know, because there, they do have plans to do something with booster gold, booster Gold and blue beetle have a history in, in comics. Um, uh, if you read some of the articles we've written about Blue Beetle, you, you can go read about the credit scene and kind of see that like there is a possibility of how James Gunn could easily tie in what was set up for a potential sequel in a credit scene and uh, with with Booster Gold potentially being involved and also Justice League International, which is something that you know James Gunn has also expressed very, uh, a lot of interest in doing. And it seems like some of the moving pieces for his new DC universe could you know be part of that as well. So you know, I wouldn't count it out, especially since James Gunn has said that he, you know, uh, was a fan of Blue Beetle. So we'll we'll see. I, I also think that it's probably unlikely, but you know, never, never say never. And I was
0: gonna say, maybe one thing that could be against it is that that very thing that you said was so great about it, which is that family dynamic, like maybe the fact that all of these characters might have to come with Blue Beetle and be addressed in future projects might be you know, a hindrance or something. But then again, I was just thinking about the trailer for uh, the Marvels, which has uh, Kamala Khan's family um, in, in a prominent position in that movie. So like, yeah, I guess there, there's precedent for that too. So maybe that's not necessarily the hindrance that I'm thinking. So um, we'll yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, what else have you been watching Brett?
2: And I also saw the last voyage of the Demeter, uh, which is the new Dracula movie where he's, he's on a boat. Um, and it's, uh, it comes straight from the, the Dracula novel. There is a, a bit of the novel where there's a captain's log that describes, you know, what happened with this journey and how uh, the crew was slowly killed on its journey uh, towards London. And they tried to survive. But, of course, uh, this uh, Dracula ended up killing them all. And uh, I this movie seems like it's been kind of divisive. People even, like making fun of it and i don't know why because it's pretty fucking good um <laughs> like like it, it's just a solid moody horror movie that's set on the you know this this old ship the demeter where you know they slowly are getting picked off by by dracula i i, I feel like it's really well done if i had one complaint it's that i wish that they had maybe done a little more on the practical effect side rather than relying on some cg and it's not that the cg looks bad um it's just I, I I just wish that maybe they had leaned a little bit more towards doing those old school kind of monster effects uh rather than relying yeah. on that. but but it's good um I, yeah, I
0: saw this a little while ago like because uh, I had to interview uh, David Desmalchian who plays one of the supporting characters and I I kind of agree that it's like just a sturdy you know like a sturdy horror thriller there's nothing I I, I don't understand why it's divisive at all really
2: yeah, it really doesn't make any sense to me, you know, um, especially since, uh, you know, Corey Hawkins is is fantastic in it. Uh, David Desmalchian, he's, he's having a pretty great year, you know, I mean, between this and the Boogeyman and I, I like him in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Um, he's got a, 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 a film festival release called Late Night with the Devil that I've heard he's really good in as well. So like, yeah, I mean, he also
0: had a small role in Oppenheimer and Boston yeah. Strangler as well. So there there's like a yeah. ton of movies for this year. Yeah,
2: yeah. So it's uh, yeah. Don't don't listen to anybody who didn't like this. Like, give it a chance. It's it's gonna be on uh, probably on Peacock sometime soon because it didn't do super well at the box office and it's a Universal movie. So give it a shot. It'll be a good movie to watch as we go into the Halloween season. And I hope that it gets uh some attention on on streaming and digital as we head into halloween because i think it's the kind of movie that if it gets a good following on a home video maybe they'll be able to follow through like on on a sequel or something because i i wouldn't mind seeing a sequel
0: yeah i think so too i think that it definitely uh lends itself to or ends in such a way where i i it left me going like damn i want to see more of of what happens now i don't spoil what happens at the end of the movie but um but yeah it certainly like had me intrigued at the very end and um yeah, it's not as good as John Carpenter's The Thing, but it definitely has some The Thing vibes on the open sea, you know, where, like, yeah. the paranoia of everything is just sort of closing in on these characters, and they're, like, turning on each other, but there's off, there's obviously, like, this external threat that is really the, the true evil among them, um, so... Uh, yeah, it's just it's yeah definitely worth checking out, especially if you care about vampire lore and things like that. So yeah, um, do it. All right, well, let's get into what you've been eating, Brad. I haven't really been eating anything interesting, but uh, as usual, you're here with a bunch of things to talk about.
2: Of course, um, as always, you can check out Brad's Junk on Instagram. It's been doing pretty well. Uh, if you don't follow it already, please check it out. It's look at Brad's Junk. On Instagram, uh, I've got over ten thousand followers now. It's pretty cool. Nice, yeah. Uh, and so there's a new Doritos flavor out there, even though it's only kind of half new because the uh, it's late night loaded taco Doritos. Uh, and if you, you know, no Doritos at all, you know that there's actually a regular taco flavored Dorito that that's out there and it's pretty dang good. And this one isn't remarkably different. It seems like it just has a little extra touch of maybe like some salsa and sour cream to add that, that loaded taco flair to it. Uh, otherwise it's not remarkably different. Um, but as somebody who doesn't really like, uh, salsa, uh, I don't mind the little subtle flavor that comes along with it because I really do enjoy the Taco Doritos. So uh, they're pretty good. You can get them exclusively available right now uh, at Kroger stores uh, and their their sister stores like Ralphs and King Supers and, and that kind of thing. You can look up on Kroger's website to see all the various stores that are under their banner. Uh, there's also new butterscotch scoop Snickers. Um, it is a Snickers bar that is inspired by an ice cream flavor. Apparently, just butterscotch ice cream. Uh, And so it's uh, the butterscotch flavor is a nice mix with the uh, the Snickers flavor. It still has, you know, peanuts and uh, caramel. uh, But I think it's the the nougat that kind of has this like extra butterscotch flavor to it. Or or maybe it's like a butterscotch cream. I forget how how they did it. But uh, but it's 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 solid. They um, you can get it in like a normal candy bar size. It comes in like these little like rectangular squares or they have like bigger bags uh, that they have like little fun size versions of the candy bar as well. So um, those have been popping up. I, I think they're a Walmart exclusive actually. So keep an eye out for those at, at Walmart.
0: I think we've talked about the Snickers ice cream bars in the past, Brad. Um, Probably. Do, do you know if they uh, like branch out with different flavors for those or do they keep that focus to just the old school Snickers uh, flavor?
2: As far as I remember, I think that the Snickers uh, ice cream bars are pretty regular. They might have also have an almond Snickers ice cream bar, but don't quote me on that. I could be misremembering. Okay, um, yeah, I was just
0: curious if they like cycled a bunch of these new flavors for like the typical candy bar into the uh the ice cream bar format or whatever. But it sounds like they probably don't. So.
2: Yeah, no, not usually. Although there is uh, so there a while back we talked about uh, uh Twix cookie dough flavor that's out there, which is really good. Uh, and there is a Twix cookie dough ice cream uh, that recently uh, came out. There's like, I found. Oh, like
0: that you can buy in a pint or a gallon? Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Okay,
2: yeah. cool. Um, that, all
0: right, what else you? have you been
2: eating? Uh, I also have tried uh, Little Debbie Swiss Rolls cereal. Um, in the past couple years or so, uh, they've been releasing uh, Little Debbie cereals, they did oatmeal cream pie. Uh, before and now, the latest one is the the Swiss rolls, which is basically the Little Debbie version of ho hos. Um, and I was curious how they were going to kind of capture this flavor in cereal form, because uh, some of the attempts to turn certain like snacks or things like that into cereals hasn't worked out very well the, the best version of the little debbie cereal so far has been the nutty buddy cereal because you can't go wrong with a chocolate and peanut butter combination uh, and they even managed to kind of capture the texture of those those wafer snacks as well um but the oatmeal cream pie one, it was. It felt like it was missing something because they couldn't really replicate the flavor of the cream and how it mixes with the oatmeal with the oatmeal mm-hmm. cream pies. Um, and the Swiss roll cereal does a little bit of job of it. And I think it's because whatever kind of frosting or glaze they use on the Swiss roll pieces, it does actually have a little bit of that cream flavor. It's still not, you know, exactly like a uh, a Swiss roll. You know, you, you might as well just get the snack cakes for that. But I was. Uh, a little more impressed by this one than I was with the, uh, the oatmeal cream pie cereal. So uh, if you're interested in that, you should, you should try that out.
0: Okay. So that's little Debbie Swiss roll cereal. And then you've also been trying another cereal too.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, even though uh, it's, it's only August. Uh, if you haven't noticed, there's tons of Halloween stuff out already. All the pumpkin spice and maple and caramel apple flavors are all making a comeback. Uh, and that means also all of the monster cereals are returning as well. Count Chocula, Boo Berry, Frankenberry. And this year, there's a new monster cereal that has come from General Mills and a new mascot. Her name is Carmella Creeper. Uh, she's like a DJ zombie girl. And it's a caramel apple flavored cereal uh, that has no, the normal cereal pieces with some marshmallows in it. Um, and it's solid. I wish the caramel apple flavor was a little stronger. Uh, I feel like that the, there's not necessarily... Uh, enough on the cereal pieces to really give it that proper caramel uh, apple taste. Um, But I've also noticed that the monster cereals in general have kind of not been as flavorful as they used to, because I used to love Count Chocula when I was a kid, but it is just not as chocolatey as it used to be. Like Cocoa Puffs is infinitely more, has a better chocolate taste uh, than... Count is, but Count chocolate used to, used to have such a good chocolate cereal and it used to make the milk super chocolatey and just Cocoa Puffs still blows it out of the water now. So, uh, and I think it's kind of the same issue with this one, but it's, it's decent enough. You know, there's not really uh, a lot of caramel apple uh, cereal options out there. So, you know, if you like that kind of flavor, then, then, then maybe give it a shot.
0: Okay. Carmella Creeper. Wow. Did she have like the, the same kind of um, aesthetic design as a lot of those other like old school mascots? Did they try to capture, you know, that whatever 60s, 70s vibe <laughs> or whenever the, those characters came out originally?
2: So they've they've given the character mascots like a little bit of a modern look. Like um, they, they didn't like overhaul them entirely. They still have like, kind of like the same basic character design, uh, but they don't uh, look old school. Last year they did kind of like a throwback where the box art was kind of like the, the, that old school 1950s look, but the new... Uh, des- design this year is like it's much more of kind of like a modern animation style but the character okay. the character look definitely kind of still falls in line with how you know Count Chocula and Frankenberry and all them and look and whatnot but she's she definitely has more of a modern vibe she kind of looks like a zombie goth girl from Hot Topic
0: <laughs> okay Uh. so one final topic here what we've been playing what have you been playing recently Brad
2: I have been getting into pinball lately uh, my friend Ben, who I do my podcast, Go Flicks Yourself, and uh, the 10 to 1 podcast with about Saturday Night Live, uh, he owns an arcade here in my small town of La Port, Indiana. It's called Full Tilt. Uh, And it has tons of pinball machines, has some classic arcade machines, uh, skee ball, air hockey, all that good stuff. Uh, And it's been doing really well. It's uh, lots of people go to it. You know, we we have a small town. And so uh, if you want to do something kind of cool like that, you usually have to drive like a half an hour away to one of the bigger towns in our area. So it's been cool to have this here. And, uh, even before he opened the arcade, my, my friend Ben was getting into, into pinball. He had a couple of his own machines, uh, and that kind of fueled his desire to want to open his own arcade. And so now that he has one, uh, he's been playing a lot of pinball and he started getting me into it as well. So, uh, Pinball, I I had never been really that good at, and it always kind of just felt like a bit of a haphazard uh, game to me. Obviously, I knew you could be good at it, and people were very good at it. Uh, there's an entire song about pinball wizards, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but I've actually find, like really been digging in and like actively trying to like get better. And so one, you know, once you do that, you really do get a grasp on like uh, strategies of like you know uh, figuring out exactly how to get the multi ball and how to unlock uh higher point totals and that kind of thing and so i uh there's a wide variety of machines at my friend's arcade a lot of them based on on movies as well they have uh Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory they have uh The Shadow they have Waterworld they have The Mandalorian they have Pirates of the Caribbean uh they have Terminator 2 and Terminator 3 uh, there's a Godzilla pinball machine and some of them, some of them are older ones. Some of them are, are newer ones with like LED screens and like really state-of-the-art technology. Uh, but, and they all have, you know, different, uh, game uh, approaches and and like that. And they're all a lot of fun. And now that I've been getting better at, it, I've really been enjoying it uh, a lot. I've been, you know, trying to shoot for, for high scores and, and, and they have like tournaments that they uh, hold every now and then over there. Uh, and it's just been really fun to, to get into. Um, and, uh, yeah. So if you, If it sounds cool, go play some pinball.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Brad, when you walk in, what's the first machine you go to? Are are you
2: drawn to the um, to the vibes of one of those movie uh, machines over the others? So initially uh I was fascinated by the Avengers uh one there it's called Avengers Infinity Quest. Uh it's more comic book themed than it is movie themed. Um but the what's cool about it is you're trying to get the Infinity Stones from Thanos. And so you you have to activate the quests in order to actually get the stones. Uh and depending on which stone you're going after, it changes like which ramps you're supposed to hit or which targets you're supposed to to knock around and and that kind of thing. And so uh that one it can be frustrating because it's very hard to get the Infinity Stones. I've, I've only gotten uh, a couple of them a few times, um, but it is a lot of fun to, to play. And so that one's very enjoyable. But the two that I've been surprisingly drawn to more so are these older machines. They're kind of pinball classics, and they're uh, they're considered like among some of the best ever made. Uh, one is called uh, Attack from Mars, uh, and the other one is called Medieval Madness. And they're both made by the, the same company, and they're kind of built upon the same... Uh, play structure. They have, you know, obviously different aesthetics and stuff like that. But like the concept of how you play them and progress uh, in the game and get larger point totals and activate multi balls and stuff like that is is very similar. Uh, and I just have a lot of fun with them because it has a gameplay where it's very easy to understand. And those were kind of the two games that really served as a gateway of like, oh, okay, like this is something that it's not just haphazardly, you know, hitting. Uh, the ball around with the, the flippers and stuff like that. Like it's, you know, there's a, a way to go about doing this and, you know, really have a good strategy to actually, you know, be good at this game. So those have, those have been a lot of fun.
0: Do you know what kind of uh, score or consistency you have to hit in order to become a pinball wizard? Is there a, like a yeah, categorization?
2: So, so there's actually a couple people in our area who are like big pinball gurus and like their initials are all over every single fucking machine uh, in that in that arcade. And like the some of the scores they get are unbelievable. And there's been a couple times on a couple machines where I've gotten close to like to to matching them. Um, but like, uh, they are, they're just crazy good at pinball. It is, it is astonishing how good and how consistently good they are at pinball and like, not just like one or two machines, like every single machine, like they're just, they're, they are very, very good at it. Um, so, so yeah, you, you get an idea real quick about how, uh, how high you need, really need to score in order to get like your initials on the game um and it gives you something to shoot for though you know it's 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 a lot of fun seeing how good they are and trying to like get scores that are constantly better and better and hopefully you know getting up there at some point
0: i can't wait to see the eventual uh, king of kong-esque documentary about your (laughs) rise in the world of pinball oh uh,
2: actually similarly this is a movie that i watched a little while ago i'll bring it up here at the last minute there's a game called uh pinball the man who saved the game and it's based on a true story um, about a, uh, a guy who actually helped make it so that pinball was no longer uh, illegal in a lot of places uh, around the country, especially New York, because there was a time uh, where pinball was being linked to like uh, mafia activity and like laundering, mm-hmm. money and that kind of thing. And it was it was understood by some that pinball was kind of like gambling. They viewed it like slot machines and stuff like that, and that it was a um, it was a game of chance and not a game of skill. And there was this guy who like became a, a big uh, fan of pinball and was very good at it. And he became a GQ journalist and did this story about it. And then he got asked by people who were trying to overturn uh, this legislation. It was like in New York, it had been banned for like 35 years uh, to prove that it was a game that you could be good at and a game of skill. Uh, and so it's uh, it's it's a pretty good movie. It's um it stars Mike Faced from uh the new West Side Story remake. Oh, played. it's not a documentary. No, no, it's 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 a it's a dramatization. And what's what is cool though, is it's it's framed like a documentary. Uh, they have an actor playing the older version of the main character, and it's framed like he's talking about his life in like these talking heads. But then like there's like interludes where he's like, well, that's not really you know, how it happened or he's like, he's like, he's like, I know you have to dramatize, you know, this kind of thing. And it's kind of clever how it's, it's framed and how they tell the story and stuff like that. So uh, Pinball, the man who saved the game, that's on on Hulu if you want to check that out.
0: Okay. That's a great recommendation. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about all the these stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slashfilm Film show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes to do that. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.